Today's guest explains how you can adapt and thrive by recognizing, understanding, and utilizing the ancient Asian approach to innovation. He illustrates how companies can use this powerful wisdom and how you too can pass through the five stages of innovation. Metal, admit that you're stuck. Water, conceive new winning options. Wood, assemble your resources. Fire, break out your innovation. Earth, make it sustainable. With his book, you have the ancient strategies you need to lead the way to a more productive and profitable future. It is a pleasure to welcome back on the series on his work, the author of The Way of Innovation, Master the Five Elements of Change to Reinvent Your Products, Services, and Organization, Kaihan Krippendorf. Welcome back to the show. Aiden, thank you so much for having me back, and it's great to see you again. It's great to be with you again, man. I'm really enjoying your writing. I'm learning. What I love about it is I'm learning about these ancient, this ancient wisdom through the lens of innovation. I, I absolutely love what you've done here. So let, let's give a bit of context to this book because you begin the book with the following. And I thought you might expand on this to give us context. I, I love these little excerpts. So bear with me. You say, as our world becomes more complex, no one should expect the task of piloting innovations to become easier. Quite the reverse. The coming age will demand dynamic, flexible strategies and an ability to respond quickly to emerging threats and opportunities. It will require unleashing innovations with speed, efficiency, and flair. Yes, you say, despite the vast history to draw upon, we remain ineffective at this critical skill. Our attempt to introduce new things, new products, business transformations, entrepreneurial ventures, social movements, consistently fail. Finally, you say here, our modern frameworks for change are rooted in only 50, perhaps 100 years of history and limit themselves almost exclusively to corporate and technological innovation. This sets you up nicely to give us an overview of this beautiful history, this beautiful wisdom. Thank you. Yeah, I think, I mean, that sort of captures it, that we've been studying business strategy for maybe 60 years and kind of it may change maybe if we you know extend our view, definition of what that is maybe a hundred years organizational building and things but really innovation is even newer than strategy you know 30 or 40 years and yet um there are other studies of change that have lasted much longer and in um Taoist, you know what we now would like kind of put into as part of Chinese culture, Taoist you know, cultures, you know, way been a study of change. The I Ching is the book of changes, for example, and and so we have something that's survived and evolved and reached a state at which people look at it and say, yes, this is it. It's kind of like a, you know. 5,000 year research study into how change works, right? And the way we come up with our theories is is like that. We try things, we see what works and we and, and if it works, we keep it. If it not, we change it. And eventually we end up with some kind of framework. And so this 5,000 year study into change landed on this framework of these five things. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the five things, but you know, the five things pulled together, I think some concepts 
that we've only rediscovered relatively recently and that aren't yet connected into one thing. And the five phases can be a way for us to pull together these disparate change innovation concepts into one framework. We'll go through them individually and we'll pull out some examples. And we're going to do this over two parts because firstly, to recognize as well, you wrote this book along a couple of decades ago almost, and you, you know, you've updated your thinking a lot. So, and, and I appreciate you doing this for us as well, going back into the past as well. I know that's difficult for authors to do as well. So I want to mark that as well. And you, you have to refresh yourself on this content again, because you have your own podcast, you're constantly updating your own mental models. And I, I, I was going to start with this because you mentioned how so many of our modern views of innovations fail, the frameworks fail because they all fall short of what you call the shift. And this concept of the shift is an important concept to understand for this book, The Way of Innovation. We're talking about intentional change. It begins with some conceptual shift. And I think like the original human innovation, we could say, is the plow. So sometime maybe around 7,000 BC, there was some person who wasn't a farmer because we didn't have farmers there then um well i guess we i guess we did but they weren't very productive farmers so they had to move around a lot he or she found a three-pronged stick and said um and and put it into the ground and they were also cultivating oxen at that point tied part of that stick to the ox and the ox would walk along the ground and and this and this farmer could scratch a hole in the in the ground and then plant seeds. It became a more efficient way to farm, to create food. Now this transformed how humans lived. Until then, we were hunters gatherers. Uh, we uh, picked up stuff that was growing naturally. Uh, that stuff happened to grow where we went because we dropped seeds. Then we come back the next year, and lo and behold, there were. Uh, early forms of corn and wheat and things that we could eat. But we were moving around a lot, and that changed all of our societies and how we were structured and things like that. So then, with this invention, humans not only could, but we were better off, or we perceived we were better off by staying put because we could grow our food, we could protect our food, we could predict when we would get food. And because of that, then we could have extra time on our hands. We're finally producing more calories than we need to exert to get those calories. And so what do we do with that extra time? Uh, we build things. Uh, we study things. We invent science. We do art. Um, so we could say a lot of what we consider uh, um, the foundations of civilization came from having this extra time, which came from having this extra food, which came from the scratch plow. Now, what was the scratch plow? The scratch plow, if you looked at the primitive scratch plow, it was a stick with three things. And so the innovation was not a changing of the stick, transforming it as we often think of the physical thing into a new physical thing. It was a conceptual shift where someone looked at it and said, this is not a stick, this is a plow. Now, if you call the thing a stick, then you do what you do with a stick. You might uh, burn it or cut it apart or build something with it. If you call it a plow, what do you do with it? The name plow, the concept of plow applied to this physical thing changes its meaning for you and therefore what you do with it. So that's what I mean by the conceptual shift that 
intentional human creations always come with a conceptual shift. And in modern innovations, we can also trace that you know, the mobile phone was a, is a concept. Software is a service. It's not a thing. It's a concept. It is the so it's the it's the it's the sh mental shift which carried in language, and that language becomes sticky if it is, and if it operates correctly with beliefs and metaphors and things like that, it propagates, and then everyone says, "Oh my God, this is a scratch palette." Everyone uses a scratch palette that changes things. There's a couple of things you said here that I'm going to just pull on. You mentioned a bit the language as well, so it wasn't just oh that's a different type of stick. The importance of language as carrying meaning, and once we understand that is very important. We'll come back to that later on because this, you have deep understanding of this because of your father's work as well that you built upon. But let's come back to that. And that, and then to to help us, our, the audience, and also hopefully the people who will buy your book and read it, is to understand that the framework, because this ancient framework that you mentioned at the top of the show has four basic concepts. And before we even get into the five phases of change that was really the body of these two episodes we're going to have, there's a, three previous concepts here that are important to understand. The dance between two parallel worlds, I love the language there, the material and immaterial determines the direction of change. So I thought we'd cover each of these in turn. And then an endless cycle of creation and destruction that fuels change, which is beautiful. And this all speaks to, by the way, my pin that I'm wearing today, which is kind of a yin and yang type pin. And then three primal powers, heaven, earth, and man, and how they drive change. And then we'll get into the, the five phases of change later on. But let's start with this understanding how reality and perception are linked, because this is so critical to innovation. They say you get to write one book, and it's usually your first book. I feel... If I got to write one book, then this is my third book. This would be the book. This is the book that I care the most about, that I spent the most time on, that is most personal. Uh, and it's been a while since I've used it because my subsequent books have been kind of almost just taken the concepts of these books and just put over it language, a facade, a simplification that makes it more accessible to people who are operating in the world of business and innovation. So there's a translation there. It simplifies it, and I haven't peeked underneath it in a, in a little bit. So had you asked me this question 15 years ago, my answer would be more precise. Uh, so, you know, in, in the West, we tend to think of as words as fake and physical things as real. So we can talk about doing something. I think it was the the founder of, of Stanford University who said, man cannot create what he cannot imagine. Now he would say a person would not, could not create what they cannot imagine. So the idea is that we uh, think of things, we speak of things, and then it we we said then we come up with a design of something as a blueprint or a how to whatever, and then we go and change the physical world to match what we said. Um, so what one point is, you know, it's what we say and then what we do, and then what we do then shapes what we say. So there is this back and forth. But an important thing to think about is. is in a Taoist perspective and many Eastern perspectives, those two things are both real. They're, what you're saying is the immaterial world that we're talking about, we're describing, we're telling stories, and then that has an impact on the physical world, and the physical world is catching up to the, to, to the immaterial world. <clears throat> but it also works the other way around as well. So um, 
that is the dance between the two. And so if you can start thinking of it not as we talk about something and we do it, but rather a dance between immaterial, material, immaterial, material, you'll start seeing how they play in on each other. Let's go back to software as a service, for example. Um, the um, Salesforce.com comes up with this idea that, hey, let's not install software in your hardware. Let's install them in, in, in your uh, servers. Let's install in my servers. It will give you access to it. And so it's just a different way of distributing it, right? They call it not software. I mean, you can see these signs of them marching, not software, not software, right? Um, but it took a while for people to catch up onto that. But then what came out from the immaterial world was this idea of cloud. And a cloud has a nice metaphor that there's something up there that can come down and go up. And so now it fits our physical world. We say, ah, this software is like a cloud. I already know what a cloud is. We can get into metaphor later and why it's such a powerful mechanism to have people make sense of, to recognize, recognize, recognize what they already know. And so now software becomes, ah, now I know what a cloud is. And then there are all these other illusions. So once we've changed it, now we physically change what we built, but also that cloud then changes the immaterial world in that if we say, if this, if so, if the software is a cloud, what else is true about the attributes of a cloud? A cloud can travel to lots of different places, so we can now distribute this to lots of different places. I used it, by the way, for helping my kids understand how the cloud works, because it was a little bit of kind of going, where is it on the computer, and how come you can access it from your phone? And you're kind of going, well, just imagine there's a cloud, and we can all access it from different <laughs> perspectives. Some people really struggle to still make that shift today, which is which is why the reality and perception is so important for innovation. And also metaphors and language is so powerful. We'll come back to that in a little while. Only thing I would just make a tweak on what you said is, and you said it, reality and perception, that implies real and not real. And what a Taoist would say is they are both real, just one is material, one's immaterial. So let's honor the perception as a reality. It just hasn't moved to the real plane yet, which is also so important. Like one of the things I, I serendipitously, I saw a quote by Bruce Lee yesterday, and it was something along the lines of, be very, very careful how you speak about yourself, even in jest, which like we're terrible at, in Ireland at you know self-deprecating humor. And he would say, don't do that at all, because the universe doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. And when you speak about it, you bring it into being later on. And I, I was like, wow, well, that wisdom speaks very much to this book as well. But let's move on. And, and I mentioned this, we the, the term we're familiar with from an innovation perspective is creative destruction, Joseph Schumpeter, and this idea of but this idea wasn't Schumpeter. It goes way, way back. This idea is at the very fabric of humanity itself, right back to Eastern traditions. And I love the language here. I'll quote, just set you up here with this. The old must step aside for the new. For example, here you give the AT&T monopoly had to die for the baby bells, for the sprint and the horizon to grow. We know this intuitively to be true, but we tend to resist it anyway, especially when we are on the receiving end of the destruction side, secretly hoping we can avoid the inevitable. Beautiful way to set us up for the endless cycle of creation and destruction that fuels change. 
Machiavelli said there's there's nothing more difficult to take in hand than to introduction than the introduction of a new order of things because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions and lukewarm defenders and those who may do well in the new. So you have this battle of the old and the new and until the new has more power than the old or the old is willing to let go of the beliefs, metaphors, frames, whatever that is that prevent them from embracing the new, then you would never have the new replacing the old and then you have a stagnant system. And um, Thomas Kuhn, the uh, person who developed the theory of and coined the term of creative destruction, I'm sorry, not creative destruction, of, of scientific revolutions, he said something like, I'm not going to say this articulate as, as nicely as he, he said that the, um, like, n no scientific revolution has come about because the, the, the new generation convinced the old generation. Instead, the new generation grew up in a, you know, in a, in a, in a paradigm in which it, you know, the paradigm became obvious and then the old just died away. The old paradigm died. Yeah. So, um, we could say it has to actually be the people who die or the companies who die. It could also be the beliefs or frames that need to die because those two don't exist together in the same in the same world. So you know we need to kill. That's creative destruction. Jumpeter, uh, that is uh, VJ Govindaranjan, VG. His three box solution has this box of like stop doing. You know we use the term of forgetting now in innovation um and uh, and that's also explains you know disruptive theory or part of disruptive theory that we hold on to the outdating product that you know it, it that that's that's scaled and profitable and we can and we know how to run and we and we don't want to embrace the new one or cultivate the new one they can't exist together there's the cannibalization you see the parallels in all of those, but step back and look, there is the old must die for the new to take hold. And the new represents change, evolution, life. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful, man. I, I love the, I love the fact that none of this is new, you know, and, and the, as you know, you're a scholar of innovation. You teach it, you work with organizations, you're a practitioner of it yourself. And you, you, the the more, and this is the beauty of going back like this, and why I'm grateful to the authors for doing this with their old work, is that when you go back, you realize that all the newer stuff is actually just, as you said with your own books, it's it's almost a simplification of the other stuff, which is fascinating in itself. You would think it would get more complicated, but in a way, it's getting more and more simple. You know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, think about when you try to explain something that you haven't explained before you don't really know it's it, it takes a long time because you don't fully understand it when you've explained it a hundredth time then it becomes simple for you right and so let's apply that across generations when there is a framework like this that has been explained from generation to generation for five thousand years at the end of that it has been synthesized into its essence it becomes simple and so when I see a chart with, you know, a systems chart with lots of boxes and arrows and pointing to each other, you know, it, that's an indication to me that, that we're at the beginning of the understanding. It's when you can simplify it um, that it shows that you have kind of reached understanding.
It's one of the reasons I write, by the way. I, I don't know about you, but I find if I write if I write it, I have to understand it. And if I write it in a way that's understandable and somebody goes, Ah, oh, is that all it is? Then then you then you got it. And it's a great way to solidify what you know and what you don't know. It's a little tricky because it is also easy to say something that someone understands by simplifying it or not accurately describing it. So I think that what Einstein's suggesting of finding its simplest form, that is different than explaining away something or putting on a mask of a facade of, of, of simplicity, I think. So, so the next part of all this is the three primal powers, heaven, earth, and man, and how that drives change. And this draws on something we covered before in the 36 stratagems in particular, and one of your favorite strategists, Sun Tzu. You say here, the ancient and off-sided Chinese text on military strategy, the art of war, proposes that three forces influence all change, and they are called heaven, earth, and man. To successfully launch an innovation, you must assess your situation along these three dimensions. To skillfully manage your innovation, you must understand which forces from these three directions are influencing your effort by offering resistance or support. Maybe you'll unpack this one. Yeah, and like we want to map it to um, change in a business context using tools and that, that we're more familiar with. Um, so picture uh, an image of a person standing on the ground under the sky. That's a complete picture. So the sky represents, heavens represents, things that we cannot control and other humans cannot control. Um Certainly, we're realizing that we do control the environment, and we're not doing a good job with that. But these are things that are generally that are you know secondary, tertiary uh, uh, factors, right? So, in a business context, these are things like emergence of new technologies, shifts in socio demographics, macroeconomic changes, those kinds of things that describe the environment. So, when you're setting a strategy, you naturally want to look at um, what is out there that we don't that we don't control. In a SWOT analysis, this would be opportunities, threats, maybe. These are factors that um, are out there that we're all dealing with. People are going mobile or things are going cloud or next generations care less about money and more about impact or you know any of those things, right? So you want to all start with like understanding where the environment is. Is it going to rain tomorrow? Is it going to be sunny tomorrow? That kind of thing. Um, Earth is the stuff that you're walking along, walking around. You have direct impact with, uh, contact with. Think of them as they're often things that other people control that you may not control. So that would be, let's take porters. We could apply porters there, right? That that are your suppliers. Those are your buyers. Those are your competitors. Those are your entrants. Those are your substitutes. If you want to use that framework there, but it is the 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 other agents that you're going to have to interact with here on Earth in order for you to have their change. So. You know, it's, it's, is it raining and I, I, I need an umbrella and who is going to stop me from getting the umbrella or making the umbrella? And then there is man is who are you? Uh, and that could be, you know, as a company, what's our mission? What's our vision? What's our purpose? Ultimately, uh, what picture do we want to create in the future? Given what, what do we want heaven, earth and man, you, you know, us to look like in, you know, and, and so you are the agent. So you need to understand all three in order to, and you have direct interaction with the earth, 
you can shape things, but less interact, less uh, influence over heaven. We've got to the five phases at the heart of the book. This is where the real body of work comes to life. And each phase is represented by a physical element, metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. I love the way you set us up for metal. For metal, this idea of discontent, because I think it was George Bernard Shaw said, all progress depends on the unreasonable man or woman, that you have to be discontent about something. And oftentimes those people... I'm sure you're one of those people, Kayan, is is often seen as a troublemaker or a, a, a almost time, sometimes a naysayer. And in fact, they're a gainsayer. They're people who are bringing the new being into 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 the present, like you were saying about the imagined and the reality. These are the people who can see into the future almost and, and speak it into existence at the initial stages. But they're often condemned in many ways. When you want to launch a change effort, first thing you want to do is build the burning platform, right? If you are looking to change in your own life or, you know, you need a, a point of acceptance where you accept that, you know, if you have an addiction, accept the addiction and then move forward or accept the grief, right? So you have this moment where we need to go through the acceptance of the letting go that where things are, are stuck. Um, it's represented by metal because metal is rigid. In the phase before this, we'll talk about later, things are, are solid, but still a little flexible. Metal is, as things change around you, the metal does not change. So then there becomes a gap between the metal and the environment. We talked earlier about heaven, man, earth, right? If you're If man is now metal, it's changing. It started raining. It started getting hot. It started getting cold and the metal can't change anymore. So we recognize the point at which we are trapped. Um, and, and look at any, any, any corporate reinvention. You'll see there's a very similar thing. There's a moment where leadership says, like, I think it was, um, the CEO of IBM, uh, Luke Gerstner, you know, he said, IBM just couldn't change anymore. So that's what metal is. That moment where you stop and say, this is not working. This needs to go away. I'm going to give a little quote again as well, because I love how you wrote this and you brought the present and the past together. And this will set us up nicely. Maybe we'll share afterwards the example of Puma and Reebok, two organizations. One decided to act on discontent and the other didn't. But this quote is how you set it up here. Innovations are born when their environment is rigid and lifeless. Hindu science has called this beautifully frozen energy or tamas. The system's energy is trapped in the bonds that hold the system motionless, incapable of freeing itself. The system is stuck in a set of beliefs, assumptions, attitude, habits, and identity so completely that an organization can only maintain the status quo. It cannot respond to threats and opportunities with sufficient speed. An organization cannot move past the metal phase if it does not recognize that it's stuck in the first place. The only way change can happen is if somebody who holds a powerful commitment, vision, or aspiration realizes that the vision cannot be fulfilled under the current conditions and decides it is time to break out of existing rigidity. Only then can innovation begin. Beautiful man. Wow. Oh my gosh. I wish I could write like that still. <laughs> you, sound, you sound like you're in metal stage, man. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a good moment for me. Thank you. I'm gonna re yeah, no, it's um this this book I, I wrote when I was living in Miami. It's just a period where I had a lot of time and um and we'll go we'll go into it I think later we're talking about my dad, but I just had a lot of time to write to write this and then rewrite it and 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 just take these and just synthesize. I think now I would take that and probably turn it into a whole paragraph, a whole um a whole chapter. So let's share the example I mentioned there. So th there's a co each chapter you explain the format. So metal discontent, you explain what that's about. You draw on some ancient wisdom, and then you share some modern examples and modern in the context of the book when you wrote it. The example back then you, you took was Reebok and Puma, and we know many of us now how that's planned out. But at the time, it was at this kind of metal stage, and you captured it perfectly. The case of Puma um, versus Reebok is, is interesting, and it's telling, and it follows patterns of uh, of, of of other pairs of competitors. So around um, the 1980s into the 1990s, these two shoe companies, Puma and Reebok, are both struggling. Um, one of them is struggling less than the other. So Reebok is struggling in that its revenue is uh, under pressure, but its profit margins are still there, whereas Puma has negative cash flow. So Reebok can start tweaking its strategy and it tries to kind of alter its strategy. It's still, it's heavily in the aerobic sec segment. And so it it looks to become more competitive there. Puma's kind of like, what do we do? We need to really change. They try to enter the United States. That doesn't work. And they're in this situation, this state of dissatisfaction where they realize something has to change. They hire a new CEO. The new CEO lasts a few months. Then they hire another CEO, um, Jochen Zietz. Uh, he is, at the time, the youngest CEO of a publicly traded European company. And um, he recognizes they need to kind of rip the Band-Aid off and really change how they conceptualize things. I think they changed their official language, corporate language, from German to English. They do a number of radical things. Um, the overall vision that they come up with is not being for the, they won't say this explicitly, not being for the athletes in the stadium, but being for the fans in, in the stadium, you know, in, in, in the stands. So this becomes less of a performance brand and more of a lifestyle brand, which also happens to be, if we look at heaven, uh, and earth and, and, and man, it, under heaven, this also ends up playing towards a trend of people really seeing sneakers as fashion and seeing athletic uh, apparel as fashion, starting to wear it you know, on weekends, daily life, even into the office. And so that positions them because they, 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 they recognize that something really had to change. They experience the state of metal. They said, we need to abandon what we've been doing. That gives them the courage to step into what is going to be the promising future. Whereas Reebok, if they had seen that, or if they probably did, they were left with, well, you know, maybe this can work out. Maybe if we just adjust a few things, we can either make it through, or at least we can buy another year, another few years. Uh, so that is a perfect example. And there, and there are tons of examples of companies that they don't change until they reach that state of discontent. IBM did it. Newcore Steel did it. 
Um, you know, Dell does it. You know, Elon Musk almost goes bankrupt. You know, so it is this idea of reaching bottom before we can be willing to uh, abandon that and 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 start creating a new future. But you point out these five stages, and feel free to grab onto these because in the book you cover them in depth, and this will just ring true for so many of our audience. You say here, if you study the origins of any successful innovation, you'll find that these conditions were present at nearly every beginning. One, the system had become rigid, unable to react to new opportunities or threats. Two, it holds on to beliefs that prevent it from seeing changes possible. Three, it is it lives in a story that robs it of power to act. Four, someone perceives weak signals that the environment is changing. Five, that person then brings to this situation a long-held commitment that requires him or her to change the system. So true. And you know, point four there, for example, is our audience, those people who perceive the weak signals that the environment is changing. And I thought I'd, I'd just throw in here because it's a beautiful quote by Osho. If you want to create you have to get rid of all conditionings. Otherwise, your creativity will be nothing but copying. It will just be a carbon copy. So that was Osho wrote that, and it's just so true. We just see it sustaining innovation all the time. So I mentioned those five points that those conditions that were present and early at the start of every new innovation or new system. Maybe you'll pull some threads on some of those. Yeah, I think that uh, like the narrative point I think is really a, a powerful one in that you know your organization is living in some kind of narrative and that narrative could be an empowering narrative in which you are an actor in the narrative and the actor can change something that changes the outcome or it could be one in which you either can't change anything or you're not in there so in my book um, I'm looking at it here some examples of these narratives that rob you of power one is the market won't change. Things are going to be fine. This is pendulum's going to swing back. That's a narrative, right? So there's no need to change. The market may change, but the changes will not affect us. So that's going to be changes are going to affect other people. But because we've been around for a long time, because we're strong, because of our types of products, whatever, that's not going to be relevant to us. The changes may affect us, but we're going to somehow survive. We're going to figure it out later. We're going to adapt. And so you could say maybe Reebok was there. Um, or it could be completely disempowering and say, look, there's just nothing we can do. Um, it's just over. And so let's just ride this into the remaining amount of time that we have left. And so, you know, recognizing that the narrative that you're living in determines what you see as possible. You want to look at what narrative is your organization stuck in. And then what a great leader does is switch, switches the narrative into one where the organization has the power to act. And that's a beautiful segue to chapter four, which is imagination. And this is where you learned a huge amount from your dad because you basically did an audit of a course that he ran, a class that he ran. So maybe we'll give a bit of context to that and then we'll explain what this chapter is about. It's about imagination, but it, it's about the element water. The nature of water is in a, is in a way the opposite of metal, right? And that metal doesn't change completely rigid the atoms or molecules are like you know in relation to each other in a fixed manner in water i mean it's not necessarily the atoms but the molecules they they move around the 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 it's 
fluid. And so what we're doing at this point is creating fluidity, possibility, exploration. We're creating new possibilities in the immaterial world through the conversation, through conversation primarily. That could look like possible visions, uh, exploring our purpose, um, the you know the, the the kind of language tools that we use in 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 corp in the corporate world, value propositions, big hairy audacious goals, all of that kind of languaging that starts creating a possible future, and then the ideation that comes on how we get there. All of that exists in language, and you know what you as you mentioned about my father, he was the longest serving professor in the history of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, when he passed away, he, he was still working. He was there for his 68th year. And one of his areas, um, he, was, he was known for content analysis. He was known for human-centered design, for cybernetics, but also for social constructionism. So he taught a course on social construction, one of the courses that he's most famous for. And I got to audit the class essentially every week he and I would have a two, three minute, uh, two, two, three hour phone call. I would went through a syllabus. I did the reading. I did the homework. And I kind of like had a personal class with him. It was such a magical moment. It was the same year that I was writing this book. I was sitting in my office in Miami. He was at his place in Philadelphia. And we just spent hours talking about it. And so anyway, I, I won't go into it in great deal. But the idea here is that <clears throat> we mostly perceive the world through language. We think we're physically to touching the world and then we're naming things but actually what we use to describe it changes what it is there is no light in your head there is no sound in your head it's all electrical signals we are interpreting the world through these electric signals and those are influenced by the go let's go back to the shift right if i call the stick a stick it exists as one thing for you if i call it a plow it exists as something else for you you use it differently. You perceive of it differently. So, I mean, there's tons of examples of like, you know, we we have in, you know, in most Western um, uh, cultures, if we look at a table, there is a head of the table. The head of the table is one side of the table. So what that is, that that, that symbolizes the table as being um, kind of an, in, an animal that has a head and legs, right? And so there's an important part of the table and a less important part of the table. Whereas in other languages, the Hot, the, the, the head is the top of the table. And so now there is no more important part of the table, which then has uh, implications for kind of social structures and things. So we use these languages, though we use the word cloud, we use the word, I don't voice over IP, we, we use it and it subliminally shapes what we think to do, how we see things, right? So in imagination, we're starting to introduce language that starts loosening up the rigidity of metal. We're renaming things, and that starts creating possibility. Maybe because this speaks to a lot of the work you do, maybe with strategists, CSOs, and I, I thought the power of language to create physical reality is such a powerful, even mental model yourself when you're going to this work, like, for example, mission vision, statements, strategies even. And for a lot of people, they're just words. And actually, they become words on a document that goes into a drawer and is never emblazoned on the walls of an organization and definitely not spoken about ad nauseum, which it should be. It should be consistently story told throughout the organization, 
cascaded across the organization from every point of the organization. And this is one of the big things we, a frustration we have as practitioners in, in innovation is that it's not over after you've got the strategy out of your heads onto paper. That's actually just the starting point. And, and I'd love you to share this. And this goes beyond the book, maybe to all that you've done since writing the book. If you think of the conversations you have, you can be having water conversations and later we could be having wood conversations. A wood conversation is a little bit more like what you're describing, what I hear you describing, which is we know that this is where we want to be. We're going to be the lifestyle band for the brand for the people in the stadiums. And this is what we need to do. We need to, I'm making this up, redesign our shoes, open up new markets and create stores or whatever. And that's going to make it. Now that is the wood conversation we, we have our vision, and we need to start aligning the actions to the vision. But how do we get there is having water conversations. A water conversation would be something like, I wonder if the future could be a lifestyle brand. I wonder if the future could be a really high-end sports brand. Um, It is conversations of ideas that aren't fully vetted, but they invite people to engage in that conversation. I don't think we have enough of those in our in our companies. If you look at the amount of flow of ideas that we need to be have an innovative organization, let's say the internal success rate of an internal innovation, let's say is 15%. You carry that through to have four successful launches of an innovation, we need to have about a thousand, we can be talking about a thousand things. You have to be able to have a conversation in which, and, 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 and you, you, you talked in, in your podcast about psychological safety, we have to have the psychological safety for people to say, hey, I don't know if this is a good idea. I haven't thought this through. If I share this idea, I know you're going to give me 10 reasons why it won't work. And that's okay because it is the statement here that brings up the question of what would have to be true to make this true. And that's how we make things true. So having water conversations and in a way you can kind of think of around the water cooler. That's not what the metaphor means, but around the water cooler, just like, what if? Why, right? There's a, a, a one professor that I interviewed from Stanford. He has his students come up with a hundred questions, and he says, like, you could come up with, you know, and it's like, why, why do the wires stick out of my computer? Why does the TV like uh, turn on? I, you know, just just things that you could problems you could probably fix. But when you can come up with, you can come up with ten or twenty. Those are ones that you've already had questions about. When you're forcing them with a hundred, it just forces you to to agitate all of these possibilities. So that is, uh, those are kind of, I'm pointing around, not really like naming, I think really explicitly here, but that is the kind of water conversation. I love it, man. I, I, I was actually thinking about like that, even as a workshop that, you know, you have metaphorically metal and you kind of go, okay, we're going to talk metal here. What's not working? You know, what, what's frustration? And then you move to the next part of the workshop, which is the water you know, what, what's possible, what's fluid, you know, I, I love that. I love that. I, you've given me a, a, inspired me here on the fly. I, I thought we'd maybe tee up the next session, uh, and, and cause we're going to continue with wood the next day. And there's a beautiful mat. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of your beautiful writing back then. You said here, just as water is fluid and spontaneous, devoid of structure and innovation begins to take shape. When an individual or small group of people realize they are stuck, are in metal state, and they develop a plan to change the future. While most of the organization remains stuck, a pocket of water is forming. A few people are beginning to see that, 
what once what a few people are beginning to see that what once was deemed impossible can be achieved. They dream of alternatives and brainstorm new strategic options. And by introducing them into their organization dialogue, begin altering the immaterial world. However, just as water will slide off the table without structure of a glass to, to contain it, the leaders of an innovation risk losing their energy to the mass of non-believers. The innovators must begin building the structure that will propel the innovation from the immaterial world into the material world, wood. They must turn water into wood. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. You do, you do a great job. <laughs> oh, wow, I wish that I Mic drop. I did actually write that. I just had a lot of time to write it. I just want to clarify that. Maybe you give us an example of maybe you can anonymize it or maybe you're allowed to speak about some client yourself or some example that you've seen where you've seen somebody start in the metal stage and move to the water stage. And then we, maybe we'll continue that. So we'll we'll drop a little teaser here for the next session. Um, well, first I'll make one 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 uh, parallel um, an analogy here is, and, and we may talk about it later is stages of a game, like a chase of a chess of a of a chess game. There's there are openings and there are middle games and there's the end game. The end game is where there are a few pieces on the on the board and we can use logic to think if I do this and I do that. In our when we come back for the next session we'll talk about that that's probably the earth phase the metal is i've i'm in checkmate it's over what water starts doing is it starts positioning our putting our position our our, our pieces back into position the number of possibilities that are available to us at the end game are narrow at the end of the game there's none that's metal the water is now creating the potential energy it's building up the potential energy and it does begin usually as you said like a pool of some people who start seeing it but not not everyone not everyone that sees it um so there's one, one example i can share and i can share it now because it's it's old and the group that i was working with this was an exercise it wasn't really the the business so i'm not sharing anything that's confidential this was over 20 years ago now so I was working with a group at Microsoft, and what we heard was that Apple was about to launch this new device. Um, it was going to be called the Slate, is what we thought it was going to be called, and it was a tablet computer. And the whole question was, how should we respond to it? So we look at heaven, what are the trends and things like that, and the Earth, the competition, and our channels retail and stuff like that, and then us, our strengths and things like that. At the end of the day, what they concluded was if you look at the uh, the market reports, the category of tablets was very small and not growing. And Microsoft already had a solution there. So the conclusion was this is not a threat. It's a small market. And it will remain a small market, therefore, and we already have a dominant position there. There's nothing for us to do, right? So you could say they were stuck in metal. They assumed that what was was going to stay as it is. What Apple was able to do was to rethink what this thing called the tablet was. They, kicked it, they took it out of the category. They created a new category. 
So it wasn't a tablet, it was an iPad. And an iPad wasn't a tablet computer, it was first an ebook reader and then access to apps and it was a whole like way to interface with the digital world, right? So that I think is an example of the difference in using metal language and using water language. And you know, we saw what happened. Beautiful, beautiful, man. Nice teaser for for the next session. So we've we've got the imagination. We've thought about what we're gonna do. Next we gotta build it. We gotta bring her from the the formless to the formed. And that is gonna be our next session when we move on to the last three elements. It's been a, a, a real pleasure talking to you as, as always, man. And we talk a lot off air before we come on as well. They should really record those conversations. But where's the best place for people to find it? Because you do keynotes, you work with strategists all over the world. Where's the best place for people to reach out and find you? Kaihan.net, K-A-I-H-A-N.net. And I've got tools and videos and, um, and all kinds of content there. That's the best way to connect. Author of The Way of Innovation, part one, Kaihan Krippendorf, thank you for joining us. Thank you.